have any of you heard before of the World Happiness Report? It disappeared. There it goes. It's fleeting, that's right. It popped up on the screen there for a minute, so you might already know uh, who's the happiest country according to this year's. But apparently this is an annual report associated with the UN. Everybody's over here today. Um, I'll, I'll lean this way to give you all some special attention. But it's this annual report associated with UN. It works on Gallup poll data and it analyzes different variables like GDP, social support, life expectancy, freedom to make life choices, generosity, corruption in your country, some other factors. And answers are then assimilated to assign who is the happiest country for the year. What's been going on for several years? You probably saw Finland got first for 2023. Uh, behind them was Denmark, Iceland, Israel, and Netherlands are your top five. Where do you think the US came in? Uh, 15, did you say 15? Close. Uh, and it goes all the way down to 137. Afghanistan ranked last this past year. So happiness, our Declaration of Independence states, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As Americans, we're familiar with this. How should we as Christians think about happiness? How should we as Christians pursue happiness? Or maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. Should we, as Christians, pursue happiness? Aren't we called as Christians to take up our cross and suffer like Jesus did, to serve selflessly? Wouldn't it be selfish to pursue what makes us happy? This is the question I hope to address as we look to the word today. And I'm gonna give you the start of the answer right out of the gate in the message. I'm calling it fullness of joy today will be in Psalm 16, but we're gonna cover some other verses first. I propose to you that the Bible teaches we should pursue joy to the fullest. Now, if you'll note, I did a word transfer there, right? We were talking about happiness and I've substituted joy. Why did I do that? Well, largely it's because, in, first in my mind, when I think of happiness, the picture that comes to mind is somebody with perhaps a painted on smile, but you really don't know what's going on underneath. And I think that's impossible to harmonize with passages of scripture that speak of the reality of sorrows and burdens, etc. How can you have one and the other at the same time? But in 2 Corinthians 6, we read that the apostles were seen as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And so there is a way that the two can exist together. Joy that can be the bedrock of the heart of a disciple, even though other experiences are also occurring. It's joy that doesn't dismiss hardship, but can motivate us through it. So throughout this talk, we're gonna be using the term joy in response to the question of should we pursue our own happiness. And I believe we should pursue joy to the fullest because the Bible teaches us to. Before we get to our primary te text, I'd like to survey several verses. Hopefully you can write down the references and if you wanna go back and look them up later. Um, but we're gonna see that joy is part and parcel of the Christian life. 
Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each of these verses, but you see in this, in this first one, joy motivates conversion. That's the picture of this parable. In John 16, 24, Jesus says, Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Joy is a goal of prayer. And he says something similar in Matthew 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We are called to pray with a goal of reward. Luke 12, 33, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And so in our generosity, we're even put out our own good as a motivation. Get money bags for yourselves. Get treasure that won't fade away. Psalm 67, 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Joy is the goal of missions. 1 John 1. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Joy overflows from fellowship with the Father and with His people. Psalm 19, verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. We see that joy is the work of God's Word in the heart of the believer. And in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Twice, all believers are called, indeed commanded, to rejoice. Joy is the duty of all Christians. I'll leave these up for just a moment, and I want you to look at them. Conversion, prayer, giving, missions, fellowship, the Word of God, all believers. And these are just a few examples. You see, the whole life of discipleship is touched by and motivated by joy from just these few verses. And we could go on with many more examples. But what I want to establish from the outset is it's completely biblical to talk about pursuing joy when indeed we're commanded to rejoice and to pursue it in all these areas. So how should we pursue joy? If it is biblical for us to pursue it, how should we? Well, we should pursue joy to the fullest in the Lord. That's an important qualifier, and it's that qualifier that we find lived out for us and modeled in Psalm 16. So if you'd like to turn there and have it ready now, we'll spend a chunk of our time considering what David has for us here. Psalm 16 is called a miktam of David. I read several sources trying to tell what a miktam was, and none of them were satisfactorily convincing to me. So I'm not going to try to pos posit what a miktam might be, but it is shared with some other psalms, and so at least we can say this was an intentional comp composition of David. It wasn't just a random scribbling. A miktam has some sense of form and purpose. And since we know it was David, we know generally when he was writing. Uh, I find it helpful to remember Abraham lived around 2000 BC, 
and David lived around 1000 BC. You can give or take a bunch of these, but okay, 2000, 1000, then Jesus comes in a thousand years later. And we get some idea of what David was going through. There's nothing specific about what his circumstances are, like some other Psalms are. But he says at the beginning, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Well, if he's asking for preservation and talking about refuge, he's apparently dealing with some crisis. I think the most um, convincing setting is some time that he's running away from Saul. In 1 Samuel 26, 19, right after he spared Saul's life after taking the spear and the water jug and then calling out, he's dialoguing with Saul and he says, if it's the Lord who stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it's men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. I can't prove that that's what was the backdrop of this psalm, but he's talking about some of the same themes that you'll hear as we read through the psalm. Other gods, the heritage of the Lord. Uh, but either way, whether it's that moment or some other, David's in trouble and he's calling out to the Lord. So let's give our attention now to his word. I'll read for us Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, please help us as we consider your word together this morning. Open your word to us that we would behold wonderful things in it. Lead our hearts nearer and dearer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Fullness of joy. As we look at Psalm 16, we're going to move through uh, the text in three sections to establish or to try to prove that we should pursue joy to the fullest in the Lord. And in the first section, it'll be the first four verses, we find that fullness of joy begins with wholehearted devotion to the Lord. Verses 1 to 4 are David's expression, David's conversation with the Lord, and setting apart himself for the Lord and apart from any other idols. Look back at verse 1. After his call for preservation, he says to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. That's personal commitment. David is saying to God, 
you're my God, you're my Lord. Like Lindsay said last week, we call that lordship, speaking of being ready to do what God wants. Here David is expressing the same thing. You, Lord, are my Lord. And note, this is not something that is possible apart from conversion and the new birth. You can't call God your Lord in a spirit of, or in a, a condition of spiritual death. Is God your God? Is he your Lord? That comes first if you want joy. And then beyond you are my Lord, David commits to God as his God. He also commits to God as his good. He says, I have no good apart from you. He is willingly desiring to commit himself to the Lord and also judging that nothing else outside of the Lord is good for him. This wholehearted devotion to the Lord is not just a lone ranger mentality of me and the Lord, that's all I need. It extends also to fellowship with his people. That's what we find in verse 3. The saints in the land, the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David here is reflecting in a personal devotional sense what we find later Jesus telling us is the greatest commandment, love the Lord with all your heart, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. True devotion includes both, love for the Lord and for his people, and David's modeling that here. It also extends to, this wholehearted devotion, extends to rejecting other gods. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips, he says in verse 4. Running after other gods will bring you sorrow. That's what David says. So it's a pretty simple pattern. Do you want to have less sorrow in your life? Then only have one God. You remember the song? There was a song I remember when I was in school, Mo Money, Mo Problems. Seems like the more money I come across, the more problems I see. You remember that? It's more God's more problems. You want to have less trouble in your life, less sorrows, then just go after one God, the true God. That's what David's teaching us here. And it extends to worship. Now that drink offering of blood that he mentions, the drink offerings in the Old Testament were typically of wine, um, not blood. So when he says drink offerings of blood, I think he's talking metaphorically about pouring out offerings to these gods who are blood-stained and they have blood guilt associated with them. Um, you remember when David wanted some water from the well at Bethlehem and his mighty men broke through and brought him back some water and he said, I can't drink their blood and he poured it out before the Lord? Well, it wasn't literally their blood. But I think that's what he's getting at here. The association of worship in these idolatrous ways would be partaking of blood guilt. He says, I'm not even going to take their names on my lips, which was commanded in Exodus a couple of places, not to mention the names of gods. Uh, it's also the inverse of the commandment not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And what I find, if you're interested in poetry and rhetorical features here, our translations say those who run after another God. The word God isn't anywhere in the original text. He just says those who run after another, and the gods are implied. And what I love about it is he's, he's poetically doing exactly what he says he's not going to do, which is mentioning the other gods. And then in the next few verses, 
The first word is the Lord, the name of the one true God. And he, he meditates in multiple ways on who the Lord is. The next four verses have the Lord this, the Lord that. I bless the Lord. I see set the Lord. So don't just say you're going to do it. Do it, David models for us. I'm not going to bother myself with these other gods. I'm going to focus on the one true God in my quest for joy. And the quest for joy, fullness of joy, we'll move on now. It continues by resting in God's present benefits. Now, verses 5 and 6 are packed with language that, um, if you want to see my notes, I can show you, but I think it'll be kind of dry to go through it all here. But what he's talking about, he's using language reminiscent of when the tribes came into the land and divided up the inheritances of the promised land. Um, and in particular, as that was happening and before it happened, God had told Aaron and his sons, you don't get any inheritance or portion in the land. He said to Aaron, I am your portion and your inheritance. And what David is saying here is, as I consider what I get to inherit, I have the Lord just like the priests did. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. John Phillips, in his commentary, Exploring Psalms, give us this helpful illustration on the concept of inheritance here. There was a wealthy Roman who had a faithful and capable slave named Marcellus. He also had a son who was a disappointment to him. The Roman died, and when his will was opened, it was found he had left all his estate to Marcellus, the slave. His will decreed, however, that his son could choose one item and only one from the estate before the will was settled. I'll take Marcellus, he said. By taking him, he took all. That's the thought here. I have no good beyond thee. I have him, and I take all. And you see, what we're dealing with is so much more glorious than a slave being grasped at to get the estate. It's a God who is willingly offering himself to us as our inheritance. And David models for us the right response. That's what I want. I'll take the Lord. I have him. I have it all. What David ultimately has is the Lord himself. And it's the Lord himself giving himself, apportioning himself the ultimate good is the inheritance David receives. And remember for David, if he's running from Saul at this point, what he's actually living through is being pushed away from his legitimate inheritance. He can't enjoy the land of his fathers, nor can he enjoy the kingdom that he's been anointed to receive. He literally only has the Lord as he's running away, cast out from the land. And in that, he gives us a model of how to walk through hardship in this life and say, you are my Lord. I have no good besides thee. So there's the benefit of the good portion. That's first. There's also, presently, the benefit of good counsel. We've praised the Lord for his guidance and his counsel. And notice... Notice that in counsel, the, the, the way authority flows, 
It's not an authoritarian top-down, do such and such, yes, Lord, I must. It's a sideways, as a friend would advise a friend on how to go, even though the Lord has all authority and has all knowledge, he could tell us exactly what to do. He, he guides us. He comes alongside us and encourage, encourages us. How does he do it? Well, lots of ways. We've talked about his word. Um, you've all experienced his counsel in different ways. I'll give a couple of examples from Christian history, some contemporary. Have any of you ever seen the Maverick before? This is a flying car. It's a road-licensed car. You can drive it on the highway in the U.S. It's also FAA certified as an aircraft. Um, here's the flying prototype. The body is a little different in that picture, but these are the public available photos. The Maverick was designed by Steve Saint. You remember his father, Nate Saint, was killed in, uh, by the Alka Indians. Um, and I was listening to a story about it recently, and someone asked him, well, where did this idea come from? And Steve said, well, I was just, I was working on another project, and it got delayed. I had a, a month to work on other things. I just woke up at two in the morning, and I had all the ideas for this, and I started writing it out right there. And his wife said, yeah, that's not the first time he's had an idea at two in the morning. In the night, also, my heart instructs me. Is that what David's talking about? Maybe. It's at least how God gave this idea to Steve Saint. Maybe you remember the story of uh, Corey and Betsy Tenboom in Ravensbrook. And before she died, Betsy started seeing a house. Oh, it's beautiful. There's inlaid floors and statues in the walls and windows. And we're going to bring all these people who need to learn to love again. Oh, and we're going to have a concentration camp where people can learn to love again. And the Lord gave her counsel. And then Betsy died, and Corey went and lived out that part of the ministry that the Lord had given her. How does he guide you? How does he counsel you? It could be ideas in the night through his word. Sometimes it's through his people. That's one of the good things that we, have, as his people, have available to us right now. Fullness of joy also includes resting in God's present benefit of protection. And that's what we see in verse 8. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. There are a couple of different pictures the scriptures use about right hand power and all that. I think one helpful il illustration here is the illustration of the warrior. When you as a warrior in battle, strap on your, your gear. You've got a shield to the left and a sword to the right. So if you're striking with your sword, your right side's exposed, unless your buddy to your right shield is in place. And that shield at your right hand is your defense. David says, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. We have so many amazing benefits in the Lord right now, protection, counsel, the good portion. Well, let's move on to the remainder of the psalm. Fullness of joy begins with wholehearted devotion to the Lord, continues by resting in God's present benefits, and it flows out of confidence in God's future benefits. Verse 9 begins with the strongest connecting word so far in the psalm, therefore, Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. So yes, David's looking back to all the present 
realities we've been considering. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. David's gladness flows out of God's future benefits as well as his present benefits. And it's a declaration of complete joyful confidence. In his expression here, we have my heart, my whole being, or my glory, my flesh, everything about me is glad and is secure, is trusting. And in that declaration of complete joyful confidence, he looks forward to what God will do. Verse 10, deliverance from death. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol and corruption are language used typically of death and decay. He says, you make known to me the path of life. God reveals to us how to live and not die. And then he looks forward and he sees, oh, in your presence there's fullness of joy. The word there for fullness is used in other passages of having an appetite filled up to where you can't take another bite. Oh, I'm hungry. Oh, I can't eat another bite. It's like how you feel at the end of going to a buffet when you know you need to stop. There's fullness of joy in God's presence. Enough to fill you up to where you can't handle anymore. There's everlasting pleasures at your right hand. This is what we have to look forward to as the saints. And maybe in its first context, David was expecting only temporal deliverance from Saul's persecutions. You won't deliver, I'm not going to be killed. I'm not going to die because of Saul. I have a future. Well, we'll come back to the deeper side of it here in just a moment. What we've been laboring to demonstrate is that, yes, we should pursue joy to the fullest in the Lord. And here let's add why we should. We should pursue joy to the fullest in the Lord because fullness of joy is found only in Him. That's what Psalm 16 teaches. The only place to find fullness of joy is in the Lord. So yes, seek it in Him. Yes, seek Him. It's not selfish to seek God for who He is and who He says He is. I'll read to you a passage that helped me in this, and I heard it several times when I was younger. I hope it doesn't come across as tired to you, but I've heard it enough that I haven't used it often. Here's something C.S. Lewis said on this topic of seeking joy in the Lord. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, David in this psalm gives us a window into what a proper heart attitude is toward the Lord for all of God's people. Remember, 
the statement of the Lord being someone's inheritance under the law was spoken to the priests. David wasn't a priest, and David was under the law. And yet he was able to look to the Lord and see, no, there's more going on than just the priests receiving the Lord. The Lord is my inheritance also, David shows us. And if it can extend to him, how much more today, we who are in Christ, who is himself the great high priest, who has himself made us a kingdom and priests, how much more should we expect that the Lord is our inheritance and that we are meant to find our satisfaction in him? Yes, we should pursue joy to the fullest in the Lord. And now we'll look at one more side of it. We should pursue joy... I don't have a slide for that. I'll just... We should pursue joy to the fullest in the Lord because Jesus Christ did. We should pursue joy to the fullest in the Lord because Jesus Christ did. Jesus taught his disciples that his joy and their joy were his goal. In John 15, he said, I've spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus rejoiced in God's will to reveal himself to people. In Luke 10, he said, I, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And the most compelling to me as I look at Jesus pursuing joy is Hebrews 12, 2. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There it is. You can have joy. You can seek joy even through the worst suffering. No suffering is worse than the cross. All the sins of the world poured out on the Holy Son of God. And he went through it because of joy. He went through it because he knew there was joy on the other side. And I suspect he felt the joy even as he took that first step toward the cross. Psalm 16, of course, is not just a psalm of David, talking about David. Psalm 16 is the first psalm quoted by both the apostles, Peter and Paul, in their first recorded sermons in the book of Acts. They use those last few verses to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. We've been through Acts recently enough, so I'm not going to recap that in detail. But the quoting of the psalms and pointing to Jesus help us to see, oh, when David says, my heart is glad, we find Jesus' heart was glad. Jesus' heart rejoiced. Jesus was not abandoned to the grave. Jesus did not see decay. God raised up Jesus, as the psalm says, and through him makes known to us the path of life. From verse 11. So, let's consider application to ourselves. I mentioned to you earlier that that World Happiness Report based its rankings on things like GDP, etc. I'll go through that list with a, uh, summaries of different words. Wealth, relationships, life, freedom, generosity, goodness. As you think back through what you've heard in Psalm 16, do you hear how the Lord himself exceeds our expectations in each of those areas? His riches, he is our inheritance. 
the relationship with him and with his people, life forevermore. Counsel gives us freedom. The list goes on. If this is who the Lord is, the one that by, even by human standards offers us everything we could need to be happy, why would we go after anything less? But we do. We go after money. We go after family. We go after personal reputation, leisure, video games, romantic novels, drugs, sex, porn. Or let me really meddle with some of us, ministry. I say that because for me, one of the struggles is, do I find my joy in the Lord or in serving the Lord? Do I find my joy in who He is or in what I do for Him? Watch your hearts, friends. He is the one from whom the pleasures come, not the other things. You can keep chasing these other things, but as the psalm says, your sorrows will multiply. So if you take my counsel, go after Jesus with all your heart and one way to do that practically would be take a cue from verse 2, David's first words. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Talk to him. Spend some time in prayer with him. That Maybe what you need to do is make a plan for how to carve out a part of your life to give to him and talk with him that's going to separate away one of these other things that you've been chasing after. I don't know what, what you need to do. But I do know you need to go after Jesus with all your heart if you're going to be truly joyful. As you seek him, then you will find that you will be able to more and more say with David, you are my Lord, I have no good besides you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us and that you've set before us fullness of joy. Lord, I pray that for those of us here who are struggling to find joy, you will help us to take that next step in seeking it out in fullness in you. Help us to put away other things, to delight in fellowship with you and with your people, and to take hold of the fullness of joy you offer to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.